So, uh, perhaps, is, is Krishna there? Okay, perhaps you can introduce our topic tonight. Okay, yeah, we're going to talk about the Shall I introduce Yeah, actually, maybe we'll do that afterwards because we're going live on Facebook now. They won't be able to hear it. So, so the topic, could you tell me what the topic is? It's developing our personal relationships with Krishna. The benefit of? Developing our... Oh, developing our relationship with Krishna. Okay, that's a very good topic. It sounds like uh, the kind of thing we talk about. So, um, the, the benefit of developing our relationship with Krishna, first of all, uh, the, the fact that we have a relationship with Krishna means that Krishna is a person. So that, that's the first thing. Uh, actually, Krishna, if you could turn your microphone off now so we don't get any noise coming back, and then after the talk, when we ask questions, you can put it back on. Yeah, just your microphone, which should be right there on the Skype screen. It's the button on the left, the white button on the left. Okay, wait, wait. I can't find it. Okay, see. Okay. So, after all, if we were speaking about an impersonal truth, an impersonal God, well, there wouldn't be a question of a relationship. And so, first, I will briefly discuss why. Uh, it must be the case that there is a relationship with Krishna or um, with God, whatever name people use. Um, if we, how should I put it? Basically, our ability to reason about anything, uh, God or uh, the World Cup or I don't know, you know, what you want for lunch. Our ability to reason about anything depends on uh, our experiences. Of course, I won't get into that old philosophical debate whether we have some a priori equipment, you know, like intelligence equipment that, 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 you know, certain powers of reason that, uh, that are prior to experience. I mean, anyway, it's a lot of, that's a bunch of technical philosophy, but suffice it to say, to keep this sort of simple and clear that, um, for example, just to give one example, if we are discussing whether or not there is a personal God or whether there's an impersonal God or no God. Uh, a lot of that depends on our experiences. If we've had bad experiences in personal relationships, uh, that is sort of a fork in the road. If you have had really bad, for example, if someone has had bad experiences with their father, or was someone standing in the position of a father? 
And since uh, religions often talk about God the Father, uh, people who've had such bad experiences uh, sometimes, sometimes are attracted to the idea of such a God because they are uh, making themselves whole, so to speak. They are completing themselves they're, uh, they're, they're emotionally or even philosophically by finding the perfect loving father they never had. Or some people that had no father or bad relationships with father with the father uh, may find the idea of a supreme parent of a paternal God to be something uh, very unattractive. They may sort of transfer their trauma or their post-traumatic disorder to the idea of God. Or someone that had a great father, a loving father, may think that, yeah, I, it, it, it's natural for me, it's convincing for me that there could be a supreme loving father. I'm not trying to reduce philosophy to psychology here. I'm not saying that everyone makes philosophical or theological decisions simply based on their personal psychology. Uh, and hopefully we are able to transcend our own experiences and make reasonable decisions about where we want to place our faith uh, in a way that's at least to some extent free of our own psychological conditioning. Because we don't want to make the most important decisions in our life, such as what we think about a God or the nature of a God. We don't want to make decisions like that in a sense, in a way that we're not really deciding at all because we're, we are psychologically conditioned. And conditioned mean that means that, that my previous experiences almost forced me to act in a certain way. Or I'm not really aware of why I'm making choices. I may imagine that I'm making a philosophical choice, but in fact, I'm really driven by my unconscious or by my subconscious. So that is not a very pretty picture of human life because if something like that were the case, that our personal psychology is driving us to make certain kinds of, or or driving us to um, imagine that we're making decisions about God, but in fact, we're not really deciding. We really, because in this picture, we really don't have free will. We think we're making a free choice, but actually we're being driven by our deep, perhaps unconscious psychology. Uh, this is a dark picture of human life. It's one that I don't find inspiring or even realistic. Uh, we may be affected. We certainly, people are affected by previous or present relationships. But, um, and some people perhaps really are not able to transcend their own psychology, their own unconscious or subconscious. They're not even aware of it. And therefore, they make decisions about relationships, like, you know, what girl I want to be with or what boy I want to be with, 
or what I think about God. I'm sure there are some people who really cannot free themselves from the trap of their own subconsciousness. And that it, it is a, uh, it, it's an unfortunate state to be in. You could say it's almost comparable to a strong addiction, such as a drug addiction, or a sex addiction, or gambling addiction, in the sense that one is really losing one's free will. So, and of course, there were certain people like Freud, who was uh, who obviously himself really needed a good psychiatrist, but who tried to argue, Freud was trying to make psychology or psychiatry a quote-unquote hard science like physics or chemistry. And so, you know, free will was a problem for Freud because the people, you know, because chemicals don't have free will and that's why you can have a hard science called chemistry. Or, for example, physical objects like an apple falling off a tree, they don't have free will, so you can have a hard science called physics. Freud thought that we can also have a, by, by hard science, I mean you can ultimately predict everything. If you know enough about the conditions in which some object is existing, whether that object is a bowling ball, like, like exactly where it's going to hit the pins, and if you knew enough, uh, you know, you could actually predict which pins will fall down, or Freud was thinking if we know enough about human psychology, uh, we can predict what human beings will do. In the same way we can predict where a bowling ball will hit the pins or which pins will go down. The problem with Freud's theory, the reason Freud's theory is ultimately absurd, is because unlike bowling pins and bowling balls or apples falling off trees, we have free will. And therefore, despite our conditioning, we can actually make decisions. The reason I went through all that is because uh, some people who are a bit mean-spirited say that uh, the reason we talk about a personal God is because of some psychological conditioning unknown to us. So we're, we're not really acting with free will when we choose uh, to accept that there's a personal God, that people would do that are not acting freely, but actually they may be. I mean, I, I don't know about every case, but I know in my own case, I, I'm quite certain that I've chosen that truth uh, because it is true and it makes perfect sense to me and, and I'm not being driven by some kind of subconscious psychology. So as far as why it makes sense, we can get into that later, but getting back to the topic of a relationship with Krishna, um, if it's the case, you, you know, we just go along with this for now. If it's the case that there is a fully personal God, a personal absolute truth, as most human beings throughout history have believed, then, um, then that relationship is actually our primary relationship. It's our most important relationship. Um, because, because it's a relationship with the source of our own existence. And if there's a personal God, and therefore we are persons, then it's our very nature to have relationships. And so uh, it's not really an option 
to not have a relationship. For example, if someone, let's say, is a complete hermit and goes off somewhere into a cave or jungle and never sees another human being or never speaks to another human being, has no relationship with any other human being, that person will mentally deteriorate. There's a, uh, there's a good movie, the latest, I think they made it a few times, the latest one I think it was with Tom Hank called Castaway, where he worked for FedEx, which is, that wasn't the only cause of his problems. But anyway, he worked for FedEx and he, um, he was trapped, marooned, I think the word is, on some tropical island. He had no contact with any other human being, and so he developed a uh, you know serious relationship, I think, with a, what was it, a soccer ball or something. And so when someone, like, let's say, most important relationship in life is with the soccer ball, uh, then you know we have a problem. So, but what, um, but the point here is that we cannot exist as emotionally healthy human beings without relationships. It's simply not possible because it is our very nature to have relationships. We are not complete. We are not um, whole without relationships because we have our private life, but we also have our public life. We are individual, but we are also social. And so it's not true that we are merely or exclusively private individuals. Our, the fact that we exist as public beings, for example, our ability to speak a language, right now I'm speaking English. Uh, some of you may think with a very heavy American accent. But since I'm an American, I think everyone else who speaks English in other places has an accent, right? Because that's what, I'm, anyway, I won't make any more jokes about Americans, but, but the point here is that um, the fact that we can speak English, the fact that anyone can speak and understand any language, that comes about not through your private life, that is a result of your public life. And by public, I mean uh, your life as a member of society. And by member, I mean that you interact. You, have, you regularly interact with society. You are a member of society. So it is, that, it is our public life that allows us to speak and understand language. And if we could not speak or understand language, uh, my God, what would, what would we be? I mean, we might be about as intelligent as a soccer ball. And so, I mean, we couldn't think. How can you think when you have, don't have language? If you, well, if we think about it, when you think, even if you're just like alone somewhere and you're just thinking about your life, if you pay attention, you are thinking verbally. You are thinking in terms of concepts and ideas that are expressed by words. And so our emotional health, our ability simply to be thinking creatures that, that communicate, all that depends on our public life. And of course, what you do with all those skills depends a lot on, on your private life. 
So you have your, you know, you're an individual, you're a member of society and so on and so forth. So relationships are not simply an option, like maybe I will have some relationship in my life. And I'm using the word relationship here, not in the sense of necessarily a romantic relationship, because when I was young, the word relationship just meant, you know, a relationship. It could be with a friend, with a parent, with a child, with a cousin, with a boyfriend, a girlfriend. But then at a certain point years ago, I noticed people started saying like, I'm, I'm in a relationship or I'm not in a relationship. And I thought, well, how's that? How could you not be in a relationship? I mean, you have a family, don't you? Or you must have some friend in the world. But I, I realized people started to mean that romantic relationship. So when I say relationship, I'm not only talking about a romantic relationship. I'm talking about just having a meaningful relationship with other people. So then if there's a God who's a source of our existence, uh, and as Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, we are actually part of God, not in the sense that there is no God apart from us. But uh, for example, let's say I, I'm speaking to uh, people in Scotland. Well, I am actually speaking to people in Scotland. And so um, yeah, so there, I mean, so you, you cannot live in Scotland or anywhere else without relationships. And so if you live in Scotland, you are, in a sense, part of Scotland. You're part of it. Either by paying taxes every time you buy some, uh, I don't know, whatever you buy, you pay taxes. And the fact that you uh, hopefully stop at red lights and go at green lights, the fact that, uh, you know, in so many ways, you participate in Scottish society. And so, uh, because you're receiving so many benefits. For example, Scotland, well, Scotland's a beautiful country. The fact that you wake up every morning and assume there will be food in the market. You assume at night that someone's going to turn the street lights on. You assume you can walk down the street without having an angry mob, I don't know, you know, do something terrible to you. We assume so many things. You assume that when you go to take a shower in the morning, there's water there because no one sabotaged the water system. And I mean, I mean, we make hundreds of assumptions every time we wake up in the morning. We make assumptions that other people will honor their social contract with you. And so in that sense, I mean, so imagine that's just Scotland, beautiful country, but you know, it's just an earthly, well, are we allowed to say country in Great Britain? We're allowed to say Scotland's a country. I mean, I mean, my greatest fear in life is to be politically incorrect. Just kidding. So in the same way that you are part of Scotland, uh, and you can't live in Scotland and not be part of Scotland unless you're some type of, I don't know, you know, violent anarchist or something. So that in the same way, we are actually part of God. We actually are, we exist within God's existence or Krishna's existence. 
And therefore, if we don't have a relationship with God, we actually do, but it's inappropriate. For example, let's say you go into a store. Do you have, um, what do they call those stores? Sainsbury's? Sainsbury. Do you have Sainsbury in Scotland? You do. Okay. Jai capitalism. So, let's say you go into a supermarket. And so by walking into the store, you have a relationship with the store. And then let's say you put some food in, in, in your basket. And that's also a relationship with the store. And let's say you then attempt to roll your basket right out the door, bypassing the cashier. Uh, at that point, there's a problem. Because your relationship with that supermarket has become uh, inappropriate. You took their food, but you didn't pay for it. So in the same way, uh, God, Krishna, has actually given us this somewhat interesting universe in which we can learn and uh, you know, pursue our interests and hopefully evolve and develop as souls. So every day we are putting all kinds of nice little things in our human life shopping basket. For example, you wake up and, you know, obviously if you wake up, you're still alive. That's a very good sign if you wake up. And then we're, we're breathing air, we're drinking water, we are eating food, we are doing so many things. And someone is actually facilitating that. Someone is actually making all that possible. Someone is actually keeping us alive, giving us the power to breathe, giving us the power to think, to live, to exist. And so we don't want to be cosmic shoplifters. Is that a word? Uh, you know, I say all these words and I have to check, like, do you say that in the UK? So, um, Krishna himself uses the word thief. Krishna says, if we take all these benefits from the universe, but don't give back, then we are nothing but thieves. There's a, sort of this very cute way of talking nowadays. Uh, many cute things, when you look more closely, are actually crazy, including some people you've met. So there's a cute way of talking right now, which is that, like, the universe helped me. This is very interesting. Or, yeah, I couldn't find my car keys, and then the universe showed me where they were. Or, I don't know, the universe does all kinds of things. And whenever I hear this, I keep thinking, really? Like, what part of the universe? Do you mean, like, I don't know, the third moon of Jupiter? Or do you mean, like, a, uh, I don't know, a little white duck on, on, a, on a pond in the city park? I mean, what part of the universe are you talking about? Do you mean the whole, the universe as a whole helped you? Uh, what does that even mean? It's a big mechanism. So if we mean the universe as a whole helped us, if we find that the universe is made up of two kinds of things, conscious and unconscious, do you mean all the conscious beings got together and had this big, I don't know, seance or something? And they actually didn't do it because 
if the universe helped you, I'm part of the universe, but with all due respect, I didn't help you. I mean, let's say the universe showed you where you lost your car keys or something. I mean, to be honest, I'm as much a part of the universe as anyone else, and I did not tell you where your car keys were. And I don't think the little white ducky on the pond in the city park showed you where the car keys were. And I don't think the street light in Bulgaria showed you where. You're. So, so what part of the universe are you actually referring to? Or do we mean that if you put together all the little duckies and all the humans and all the, um, I don't know, toolkits, baseball bats, uh, everything, fruits and vegetables, asteroids, that when you put all the universe together, it somehow becomes a conscious being. Well, if I'm part of the universe and the universe is conscious, how come I'm not conscious of being a universe? And so what are, what are people actually talking about? I mean, not knowing what they're talking about does not seem to slow people down nowadays. So now, if you, if you mean that within the universe, there is a cosmic consciousness, then in fact, it's not the universe that showed you where you left your car keys. It's the cosmic consciousness. And that cosmic consciousness is somehow different from me as a conscious being, because I have no idea where you left your car keys. And I didn't even know you lost them. So if we're talking about a cosmic consciousness, uh, who is it? Like, will the real cosmic consciousness please stand up? You know, I mean, who is the cosmic consciousness? Uh, and that's why we're here. At this point, I give you my card and I offer you a discount if you sign up today. <laughs> Just kidding. So, um, so if we want to be serious and not just kind of goofy, pseudo-mystical, uh, then we have to try to actually understand what is the consciousness within the universe. And, um, I mean, consider the fact that we are conscious. Look at evolution. And by evolution, I'm not talking about Darwin's version of it or somebody else's version of it. I'm just talking about the general fact that when we look at the fossil record, which means all those bones out there, when we look at the fossil record, that older bones seem to or tend to belong to simpler creatures and more recent bones sometimes belong to more developed creatures, neurologically developed or whatever. Creatures that can actually play bingo as opposed to creatures that cannot play bingo. That's a pretty good test, isn't it? So, so if we accept, and now there are many exceptions, there are many anomalies, but if we accept that in general, the fossil record shows us that, that there's a, a, a movement from simple to more complex, and of course we don't know why that happened, you cannot scientifically explain exactly how that question, how that happened. But look at human beings. Now, it's common to say if a human being is particularly dastardly or obnoxious or immoral, it, it's common to say that he or she is worse than an animal. 
right? I mean, that's, if people say that, or like, I'd rather a thousand times rather associate with my pet dog, Fifi, uh, rather than that dastardly human being. And so under what conditions do we consider, for example, a pet dog to be intelligent? In America, uh, you see these border, these bumper stickers on cars that were, let's say my, my child was an honor student at this or that school. They have those one? Anyway, they have those, it's very common in America. Parents brag about their kids publicly, which is very classy. And, um, and then they have other bumpers and stickers that say, uh, my border collie is more intelligent than your honor student. So but anyway, I, I'm raising the general point of uh, uh, under what conditions do we consider a person to be advanced? If you meet someone and that person is sensitive, very personal, really takes the time to understand you, speaks to you personally, uh, considers your feelings, considers your needs. In other words, really treats you like a person rather than treating you as an object of, of their whims. Then you consider that person to be more advanced. Even among dogs, a dog that somehow is able to really understand or care about the, uh, the wishes or the needs or the feelings of its owner, uh, we consider to be a more intelligent dog or a more advanced dog than one that just, no matter what you say, it just it bites your toe or something. And so, in other words, the point I'm making here is that the more creatures become personal, the more advanced they are, and the more they are impersonal, the, the less advanced they are. So if we're talking about a supreme being, we're talking about an infinitely personal being. Because everything we know about evolution, about development, about advancement, about progress in conscious life, is that the more personal you are, the more advanced you are. And so we have an infinitely conscious being that actually did help you to find your car keys. We have an infinitely conscious being who is infinitely personal. And that being the case, you do have a relationship. The question is simply, are you going to be a devotee or a shoplifter? You know, those are really your basic choices. Are we going to be grateful or ungrateful? Are we going to be ladies and gentlemen or be still? So someone could say, well, what proof do you have? And what people generally don't do is think about, or just don't think, but what people generally don't do is think about what is the nature of proof? Whenever you talk about proving something, you are in a philosophical realm known as epistemology. Epistemology from the Greek word episteme, which means uh, car key. Just kidding. Episteme in Greek actually means knowledge. And so epistemology from Greek, episteme logos, it's the logos. It is a rational or logical investigation into or explanation of knowledge, or simply, how do you know you know? Under what conditions 
are you rationally justified to say that you know something, that you don't merely believe it, it is not merely your opinion, but the conditions are such that you are justified in saying that you know something. That is epistemology. So under what conditions are we justified in saying, for example, that Krishna is God, or more generally, that there is a personal God? What conditions would have to be met, to use another popular academic philosophical term, to warrant, to warrant, to justify our saying that we actually know that there's God, there's, there's a personal God. And so this question, like how do you know God is there? How do you know Krishna is God? This uh, question is actually falls within a larger topic, which is simply how do you know anything? How do you know anything? That's the larger topic. For example, to give one example I've often given, so sorry for those, I'm sorry uh, if for some of you this is a rerun, um, but they say rerun, okay. How do you know there's a real world outside your mind? What if someone says, ha ha ha, we really fooled you, you're actually a brain in a vat. Uh, and we are just, you know, you're in a laboratory somewhere and we are programming you to think that there even is such a thing as Earth or the British Isles or Scotland and none of this actually exists and all the people around you don't exist. They're just figments of your imagination because you are a brain in a vat and we are manipulating your brain to make you think these things. Now, how will you prove that's not true? I don't want to give you nightmares, but how will, you, how will you prove that's not true? You can't empirically prove it's not true, because if you say, look, you know, you know I, like, like here's an object, I can touch it, I can feel it. Well, yeah, we just made you think that. So you can't scientifically prove you're not a brain in a vet. So how do you know you're not? How do you know there really is a Scotland? and you're really in a program right now, and you're really sitting in a chair. Um, okay, so go back to epistemology. Aristotle addressed this topic, and actually Lord Chaitanya also. Aristotle, who's the father of modern logic, uh, Aristotle made the point that some things in life are self-evident. They prove themselves. For example, we see the sun in the sky. And as they say, you can't hold a candle to the sun or a flashlight or even a stadium light. Maybe it's a more modern example. In other words, you can't point any light at the sun to illuminate, illuminate it. Uh, the sun is self-luminous. So if someone said, let's, let's say it's, we're in the British Isles and the sun is shining, as it often does, sort of, and let's say we're all out having a good time. Let's say we're all having a picnic on some nice green lawn. We're having a picnic and the sun is shining and someone comes up. And let's say we say to each other, what a beautiful day, the sun is shining. And someone comes along and says, no, there is no sun in the sky. 
the sky is actually battery illuminated or something, and, and there actually is no sun in the sky. Now, at that point, we are not going to be thrown into doubt about whether the sun is in the sky. We're going to be rather thrown into doubt about that person's sanity. Or we're going to have doubts about whether that person is able to see normally. So why are we not going to doubt that the sun is in the sky just because someone says it or someone says you can't prove it? And let's say someone says, well, prove the sun is in the sky. You point to it and say, there it is. They say, I don't see it. I don't see any sun up there. You just believe there's a sun because it makes you feel good or something like that, something like really unusually intelligent. So at that point, you do not doubt the sun is in the sky. You doubt that person's sanity, or you may doubt that they're serious. Maybe this is a practical joke, or maybe this person actually just can't see. So in the same way, um, if someone becomes spiritually advanced in Krishna consciousness, or any of the many historical traditions, that have convinced people that there, there's really a God. At that point, people can know God in a way that is self-evident. It proves itself to us. The nature of our experience is of God is such that we cannot reasonably doubt it. Just like hypothetically, you could imagine maybe I have a brain in a vet, but the way you experience the world the way you experience other people, the way you experience your own existence is such that you have no good reason to doubt it. Someone can say, what if this, what if that? What if the moon is made out of, I don't know, vegan cheese? Anyone, you know, there, 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 there are an infinite number of possible statements that begin, what if? But if someone says, what if you are actually a, let's say, what if you are actually just an, an oversized, unusually intelligent string bean that somehow sprouted arms and legs? You're actually a string bean. Uh, I mean, okay, maybe I'm a string bean, but I don't think I'm going to spend a lot of time worrying about that. Or maybe there's really no sun in the sky, ditto. I'm not going to spend a lot of time. I think I'd rather go do something else right now. And so you can have an experience of God. You can have an experience of Krishna that is irrefutable because it proves itself to us. It proves itself. The nature of the experience is so powerful. It's so real. It's actually more real than anything else. To give one last example, and then I'm going to leave a lot of time for you to... Uh, give, you know, make irresponsibly large donations to me, putting your families at risk. Just kidding. That's a joke. But, um, so anyway, um, so just, to, just to wrap this up, that um, we have, the, okay, here's the example. Let's say you go to sleep and you're dreaming. Everyone has that experience. Go to sleep and, you know, sometimes you have dreams. Then you wake up. You had a dream and you wake up. Now, very quickly, you decide that your waking consciousness 
is more real than your dream. Now, why do you do that? I mean, think about that. You were dreaming that let's say you were who knows where and you wake up and you're in Scotland and you know, it just takes a second or two. You realize, hey, I was dreaming. Why do you decide that? Why don't you say, hey, I was in the real world, now I'm dreaming. You can't prove, I mean, in an empirical sense, you can't prove that your waking consciousness or the world you experience while awake is more real than your dream. You can't prove that empirically, for one thing, because your dream is not empirically available. It's like, let's say you're on an island and you want to study it, but suddenly you're taken away a you know, thousand miles away. You can't study the island because it's not available to you. So what if your dream was the real world? And what if when you think you're waking up, you're actually dreaming? Uh, okay, you know, that's the reason we are convinced, as we should be, I don't want to drive anyone crazy here with these examples, but the reason we're convinced as we should be that our, when we wake up and we really are waking up, it's more real than our dream is because of the nature of the experience. The nature of the experience. There are experiences in which something proves itself to us. So in the same way, when, when you start to become Krishna conscious, when you're on this path of bhakti yoga, you have experiences that are more real than your experiences when you were not Krishna conscious. The experiences are more real just as when you wake up, that's more real than, you were sleep than when you were sleeping. So again, if someone denies it, I don't think there's a God, fine. But the conclusion is this person is just not very spiritually evolved. This person is in a lower state of consciousness and they simply can't perceive the reality of God. The reason we conclude that is because our experience of God or Krishna is self-evident, irrefutable, more real than any other experience. And that being the case, we have to have a relationship. Again, you have two choices, devotee, shoplifter. Because we are receiving so much from Krishna, from God, we have to give back. That's, that's normal reciprocation. That's the basis of every healthy relationship, whether it's husband and wife, parents and children, teachers and students, friend and friend. The nature of any healthy, proper relationship is that it's reciprocal. And we are taking so much. We're taking our existence from God. We should reciprocate. And that's the basis of the relationship. Anyway, uh, those are the basic points I wanted to make today. Thank you very much for listening. Also, thanks to everyone on Facebook. And I'm reading your messages. And I thank you for your time, for listening. I can see I can't respond to everyone, but I do see your messages on Facebook. So, does anyone have any questions, either in Scotland or anyone on Facebook uh, can uh, send in a question now. I don't see any questions that were already sent on Facebook. Uh, so, any questions?
So Scotland will have to turn their microphone back on. Michael. Yes. So if anyone in, in Scotland there, in the Krishna West program in Scotland, if anyone has a question, please come forward as close as you can so that I can hear you because at, at the distance you're at now, I won't hear you very well. No, but you don't have to ask a question. I can, you know, my inner lazy person would be happy if you don't ask a question. But. Okay, here's a question from uh, uh, Kamala Radha Devi Dasi. When one says personal God, I get confused with whether that means a personal relationship with God or having a personal God like for me and me alone. Well, uh, it's both. Because Krishna is so powerful that he is able to have a personal, intimate, unique relationship with unlimited souls. So Krishna is there for you personally, uniquely. Your relationship with Krishna is unique. No one else has exactly that relationship. And Krishna is totally present all the time with you. At the same time, he's God for everyone. Here's another question from Umair Ansari. Or maybe you have a spiritual name, but that's the name I got here. Uh, Hare Krishna, Pam Ho, A-G-T-S-P. <laughs> Pam Hodi. Can there be such a thing as true altruism, where one acts completely selflessly when the nature of the soul is pleasure-seeking? How do we know a mother would still care for her child if there was no pleasure attached to it? Very interesting question. Oh, to Bhagavati, no, I'm still in Chawton, but I'm speaking by Skype with Scotland. Um, okay, it's a very good question about true altruism. Uh, yes, there is, by the way, altruism means that you act really out of concern for another person. And so the argument against altruism is that whenever we apparently are acting out of love, whenever we seem to be acting just to help someone else, we are really pleasing ourselves because we feel pleasure in doing that. Therefore, we're really doing it for ourselves. Okay, there's a big flaw in this argument. The argument I just gave has a big mistake. And that is, it assumes that because a particular action produces pleasure, therefore, pleasure was the motive. In other words, you can have a pure motive you can act out of love and when you act out of love you're happy but you did not act in order to be happy you acted out of genuine concern for the other person so the the, the argument that we are pleasure seeking uh we should not take this too far in other words we are pleasure seeking but we are many other things as well. We are also loving creatures. We are also, um, so also Prabhupada used to say that we seek pleasure, but the simple reason is that at the present time, uh, in some ways we're miserable. It's just like, for, so if you consider this, a pure soul is always happy. 
a pure soul does not seek pleasure. A pure soul is, by nature, always happy. Now, when you are not happy, you want to come back to your real nature of being happy. So the more we are not Krishna conscious, the more we actively seek pleasure. And the more we are Krishna conscious, the more we do not seek pleasure because happiness is just our normal state. That's just what we are. And we are actually seeking out of love the well-being of others. So there is real altruism, in other words. I'm trying to see this Oh, this is from Yogi Garudadas. It's an interesting name. Can you teach us? These are the names that come up on Facebook. I mean, I, anyway. Can you teach us about defense of truth in all forms, spiritual and material, being that it's the last leg standing in Kali Yuga? Well, there are innumerable true things in the world. Like, for example, there actually is an, an exact number of leaves on a particular tree, but knowing that precise number uh, might not be important unless you're a actually a scientist who's studying trees or something. But so defending truth, because time is limited, our energy is limited, we have to make a decision on what is the most important truth to defend. And if we defend the truth of Krishna consciousness, and if people become Krishna conscious, then the world will be filled with people who honor and seek truth. So the most practical thing is uh, defend the truth of Krishna consciousness. Uh, yes, Bhagavati said the same thing I did. Oh, uh, thank you. Someone just thanked me, so thank you. So any questions from Scotland? Not to be outdone by Facebook. <laughs> Do any of you have a question? If not, then... Uh... Okay, well, thank you all very much. Special thanks to Krishna and her husband for facilitating this program. And uh, Premanjali, it's nice seeing you. It's nice seeing you again, Premanjali. How old, how old is Premanjali? 12 years old. 12 years old. A few years younger than me. So thank you all very much. And uh, hope to see you again soon. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. So on Facebook, thank you all very much. Thank you for watching. I appreciate it. And I hope to see all of you again soon too. So see you later.